0: As we've been looking through Exodus these last few weeks, uh, we've gotten to know Moses a little bit. We know that Moses was a Hebrew, but adopted by the Egyptian royalty. The Hebrews, of course, were cruelly uh, subjected to slavery in Egypt. Their entire people uh, were subjected not only to slavery, but genocide, as Pharaoh ordered all of the male baby Hebrews to be thrown into the Nile to be killed of course Moses was also put into the Nile but his mother had made for him a basket that saved his life and he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh who raised him but that when he grew older he went out to see the plight of his people we never get that great aha moment where he realizes i'm not egyptian in fact where from scripture we don't even know that he ever thought that he was egyptian he knew that he was raised around egyptians but it seems that he knew that he was adopted but he was a Hebrew. But when he saw that his people were being afflicted and he saw an Egyptian beating one of his own people, he acted on behalf of his brother who he likely didn't know, the Hebrew man, but he killed the Egyptian that was beating him and hit him in the sand thinking that it was going to be a secret, but the next day, he tried to intervene between two Hebrews that were fighting each other, tried to get them to see, guys, don't fight each other. There's no need for this. You're brothers. And one of them said, who made you king or a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? That scared Moses and he fled to the wilderness in Midian. And in Midian, he ended up uh, defending some shepherd girls from some shepherds that were trying to drive them away from the well. And it just so happened that those shepherd girls had a, a father who was a priest who invited him back to have a meal, and a meal turned into a life, and he turned into his adopted family where he married one of the daughters of that Midianite priest and found a new life in the wilderness of Midian. And we pick up as he is in Midian, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, And what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. This account, this call of Moses through the bush that appeared to burn but did not burn up, it was not consumed, is one of the most well-known God encounters of the Bible. There's a very interesting precedent in the Bible of what happens when God encounters a person. That person always changes. That person is never left the same. This account is remarkable in many ways, and as a reader, we cannot help but identify with Moses' reluctance to go back to Egypt. After all, at this point in his life, Moses has a a family. He's got a career, he's a shepherd. He's got belonging. He's settled. He's content. He had left this discontent of his youth far behind him when he fled Egypt. He said, "Uh, I have a new life now. I'm I'm a shepherd in Midian. This is my life. And God is calling him to go, leave that predictable, that comfortable life behind and go to a people who rejected him already go to a pharaoh who has reason to kill him, to tell him to give up his economic power, oh, this is going to go really well. He can just see how well it's going to go. You understand his reluctance. To overcome Moses' reluctance, God revealed himself and his plans to Moses in a remarkable way. God would bring about a great act of deliverance and would use Moses to accomplish all this truly in spite of Moses himself. There's a lot of different reactions I suppose to uh, a leader. Some leaders want it and they they pursue it and they go, "Yes, I'm your man. Put me in charge." Some are more like Moses where they go, "I don't want to do that." But I will if you call me to it, first point I want to point out here Moses did not want to be a deliverer. He was not seeking this role. Moses was a fugitive from Egypt, remember. He now has a family that he belongs to in Midian. He's comfortable, he has peace. Moses had been there a long while, and now he was actually given responsibility for the family's wealth. He's taking care of the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. That means that Jethro trusts him. That means that he has shown himself to be a capable shepherd to take care of this flock. Remember, he's he's raised in the Egyptian court, and I doubt that the Egyptian nobles spent a lot of time tending sheep, especially because in Genesis we learn that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So there's a couple of funny accounts that I'm sure happen that we just don't have a record of, of Moses learning about shepherding cattle, sheep, goats. How is this all done? We we skip over all all that learning process and we just come to the point where he is capable enough where he seems to be by himself in the wilderness taking care of this flock for his father-in-law. This was not going to be an unusual day for him at all. This was just Wednesday or Thursday. I don't know what day of the week it was. It doesn't matter. Uh, But this this was a work day for him. He's just going about his normal life. Moses had a new life at this point. He's not planning on returning to Egypt, and yet God had other plans for him. And when God has plans for you, buckle up because he is going to bring you on a journey. He's going to bring you an adventure like you were not expecting. I recently um, got my boys to watch the Hobbit trilogy uh, with me. I love the Hobbit trilogy, but more than the trilogy, I like the book. Books better fight me on that. But anyway, um, one of the things I like about the Hobbit is that if you know the book, um, Bilbo who's the main character, is, is a halfling. He, he's a hobbit, he's about half the size of a human. He does not want to go on an adventure. He has his comfortable life, he's, he's very happy living in his hobbit hole. He likes to smoke a pipe, he likes to have his eight meals a day or whatever it is that the hobbits do. He's happy, he likes tea and a soft life. And then along comes Gandalf knocking at his door And pretty soon, wouldn't you know it, he swept out the door in the company of these strange dwarves, and they're off on an adventure, and they're fighting goblins and dragons and all such things. Moses is kind of Bilbo here. He has a life that he likes, and he's not looking for a change. But God is like this Gandalf here. God says, no, you're going on an adventure. Let's roll. Now, a careful reader is going to notice an interesting discrepancy between verse 1 here, the father-in-law of Moses, Jethro, and then if you look back in chapter 2, verse 18, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? So what's his father-in-law's name? Is it Jethro or is it Rule? Ruel. Uh, there's interesting scholarly debate on which is his real name. Maybe one is a nickname. One Maybe one is a title. They both could be titles, actually, because rule uh, means friend of God or even one who is intimate with God, which for a priest sounds like a title, could be a title. Jethro means abundant, means prosperous, one who is doing well for himself, in other words. Could be a nickname, could be his real name. I don't know. It's interesting though uh, that the the narrative doesn't even try to tell you why does what's his name is his name Jethro as a rule could be they're both his name. Um, Simon Peter is a is an example of a guy who's got two names and he, their names are used interchangeably at times. Um, Some uh, textual critics will, will use this to go, aha, the Bible has contradictions in it. See, you can't trust it. I don't think you can go that far with it. Does it really change the point of the narrative if his name's Rule or Jethro? Not really. It doesn't really change what's going on at all. It's just sort of an interesting textual puzzle that we're presented with, but it doesn't really have a lot of stakes in it. So here um, he uh, we're getting back to Moses, I'm leaving aside the father-in-law thing because it doesn't really matter. So if you really want to do some research on it, go ahead, but it doesn't really matter all that much. But Moses here um, takes his flock to the west side of the wilderness. Why does he do that? Probably to seek grazing. That's what shepherds do. They take their flock around and they stay in one place for a while and uh, sheep are kind of dumb and they'll actually eat the grass right down to the nubs till there's nothing left. So a good shepherd will move them around from time to time. So he's just looking for grazing for his flock. He comes to this Mount Horeb. Here it's called the mountain of God, but Certainly, it wasn't called that before this. It was just Horeb, Mount Horeb that's that's just what it named its name is. It becomes the mountain of God after this encounter with God on the mountain. It was simply one of many mountains in the wilderness, just like Moses was just like many men in Israel until God changed that until God put his finger into the goings-on of history. And so we, we see here that um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now certainly, uh, fire has a precedent in Scripture of being associated with God. God often appears as, as fire, why fire? Not why not ice? There's a couple a couple interesting thoughts on what the importance of fire is. Um, sometimes the fire is judgment and fire breaking out to consume the wicked and God's wrath against sin. Sometimes the fire is a purifying fire to purify His people. When God called Isaiah the prophet. Um, God uh, called him, and Isaiah said, "I, I can't do it. I have unclean lips." And so God put a burning coal on his on his lips to cleanse his lips to purify them. Sometimes we see that aspect. Sometimes the fire, which I think is what's going on here, shows that God must be respected because just as fire is good but also potentially dangerous, God is good but dangerous if you do not approach him correctly. He is dangerous to the unrighteous. Now, what is unusual about this? Has Moses seen fire before? Yeah, he's seen fire before. Has he seen bushes before? Definitely seen bushes. He's a shepherd in the wilderness. He's seen bushes. But this time he sees the fire and the bush But the bush is not consumed by the fire. This is unusual. And so he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And I love this this point in his life because it's his curiosity that leads him over there. And I wonder in in later years if he thought, what would have happened if I would have just kept going? You know, why didn't I take the blue pill? Why did I take the red pill? The fire pill? Now it's all different. Now, of course, I don't think you can actually play the the hypothetical what-if game here because God knew exactly what it would take to get Moses to come over. God knew exactly what was going on when he called Moses. And you can actually see that he wanted Moses in particular when he calls his name Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He called Moses. He wanted Moses. And this is the first time with his response with here I am that you see the verbal Hebrew form of to be. In English, it's unfortunate that our to be verb doesn't sound like the same verb. If you say I was, I am, I will be, they sound like completely different verbs. But in other languages, many other languages, it's the same word. And you can actually see that it's the same word, it just has different um prefixes or suffixes, uh, depending on the language. Hebrew is one of those that's like that. And in Hebrew, you see the repetition of how many times you have this, I am, who am I, I am this, I am that, I will this. It's a it's a big... Uh, theme that actually reveals some pretty deep philosophical and theological truths. In fact, so much so that uh, some scholars look at the influence of the Hebrew philosophy on the Greek philosophers and go, the Greeks stole it from the Hebrews. Now, I don't know how much truth there is to that, but the reason they say that is because the Greeks spent a lot of time thinking about, who am I? What am I? Why am I? A lot of time doing that. And if you've ever studied philosophy, you'll know that those are essentially the questions that they spend a lot of time going over and over and over and over again. And those questions are introduced very early on in the history of the Hebrew people. So let's look at what goes on here after he says, Here I am. Second thing I want you to see from this passage is that God was determined to use Moses. God was determined to use Moses. And so after he says, Moses, Moses, he tells him, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place you are on is holy ground. Now, does God look at the earth and go, where's some holy ground to appear on? No, Where he is, is holy by nature of who God is. God did not appear on holy ground. He appeared on ground and it became holy as a result. Very similar to how he calls people and he calls us holy. He calls us holy before him. Does God call the holy or does he call people and make them holy? He makes us holy. No longer are we what we were before. And it was important that Moses understand right from the start of his interacting with God that God was holy and that to approach God, to speak to God, to hear from God was a terrible, weighty thing. Don't take it lightly. This is very, very important. This is the first time that the word kadosh, holy, is used It's used once before of the Sabbath day. God made it holy. But this is the first time that it's used of a place. The ground on which you are standing is kadosh. It is holy. What does holy mean, though? The word, strictly speaking, means set apart. It means that it's other. And so the concept of holy is an important aspect as we think about who is God he's holy he's set apart. he is other than us. His ways are not like our ways. when we approach him it's different. I often fear that in our modern context that we've lost a sense of the holy we've lost the reverence for God. Now some of this might be a a good um, in the sense that you recognize that God is loving and wants us to approach him. Yes, um, he calls people to himself, but he is still holy and we should have reverence for him and taking off his sandals was a way for Moses to understand that this ground is is holy because God is holy. Now there is an interesting question as to whether later on the priests, the Levites, the Levitical priests, uh, did their service barefoot or not. Um, Here's the argument for them being barefoot. Their entire wardrobe, including their undergarments, is detailed very, very clearly to a point where you're like, okay, I get it but no footwear. They've got their headdress, they've got their undergarments, they've got their outer garments. No footwear? Is that just an oversight? It's an interesting question. It never, the text never tells us all the priests were barefoot, but it's interesting that all of their wardrobe was detailed, but no footwear. Perhaps they did worship barefoot before the Lord because to be where the Lord is was holy ground. And so God tells him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why does he identify himself this way? Partly, you have to just understand the mindset of the ancient religious mind. The ancient religious mind was very much focused on localized deities. Each place would have its own deities, and when they would come into a place, the first thing that they would do is try to figure out who are the deities around here. What what gods do we need to appease? And so God right away is saying, I'm not the God of Midian. I'm not just the God of this mountain. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We have history together, whether you know it or not. I am your God. This is the first time that Moses has ever talked to God, and he needed to understand this was not a new God. This was the God of his ancestors. Now notice, I am the God of your father, singular. Some people have tried to say, well, this is a a textual problem because it should say father's. That's a common way to refer to God to say the God of your fathers, like you know, all your ancestors, your people, the God of your people. But father, singular, reminds him of his own true biological father. You're an adopted son, you have a father in law, but I am the God of your real dad. I know your real people. You're not an Egyptian, you're not a Midianite. You are an Israelite and I am that God. And at that point God's self-identification would have also reminded Moses of his own identity as a son of Israel, an identity that he thought that he had left behind. Can you imagine at this point he's been living about 40 years among the Midianites and before that 40 years among the Egyptians. And God says, you are a son of Israel. Perhaps this is why he hides his face, because he knows he abandoned his people out of fear. He fled, and he's been living like he was not who he really is. Perhaps this is why... He hides his face. He feels unworthy. He is afraid to even look at God. His curiosity is now gone, and he's afraid. Perhaps he's afraid that God will say, Why have you fled to Midian? Why did you leave your people in slavery, in cruel bondage? He is afraid of God. He felt unworthy to be the object of God's attention. Now, the language here is familiar. Um, it's actually very similar to God talking to Jacob, Israel, in Genesis chapter 46. In Genesis 46, verses 2 and 3, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. You hear the similar language? You hear the double calling? You hear the here I am? You hear the relation to to Egypt? There, of course... God is saying to Jacob, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Here, God talking to Moses is saying, it's time to come out of Egypt. It's time to leave that behind. It's time to go back to the promised land of Canaan. Other interesting differences. Jacob's not afraid of God. He's talked to God before. He knows God. Here, Moses has never talked to God before. He does not know him, and he is afraid of God. And God shows that he is intimately aware of his people's affliction in Egyptian slavery. Notice the language, notice the verbs. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God understands. He gets it. It's not that he has been on vacation and he doesn't know about the oppression. He knows. He's seen. He is heard. Their afflictions have not gone unnoticed. And God still considered them his people. He refers to them as my people. It would be understandable if you would look at the plight of the Israelites at this point, and you'd go, God has forgotten them. They must not be God's people, but God still considers them his. Even though they are going through a time of great suffering, they are his. And the time had come to change their status. Verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is not only saying, I'm going to bring them out, I am going to bring them to. I'm going to bring them out of the time of suffering that they have been undergoing, and I'm going to bring them to a land of plenty, a land that is both good and broad. It's prosperous. This is the first time that we see this formula of flowing with milk and honey. It sounds sticky, I know, as, as uh uh, what's his name? Larry the cucumber likes to say that it sounds sticky. It does sound sticky, but it's a formula that's saying it's prosperous. You're going to be happy there. You're going to have plenty of things to eat, things to drink. It's going to be wonderful. And it's a big land. It's actually a land that's occupied by six different people groups at the moment, and it's all going to be the Israelites, this people that have been oppressed for hundreds of years now, this people who have been under the heel of the Egyptians will soon not only be free from that heel, but they will be prosperous in a land of their own, a big land. What a wonderful picture. Similar to how God not only promises to free us from sin, but he promises to bless us and to teach us to walk in the light of his glory. He brings us not only out of that old way, he shows us a new way. The way that the New Testament puts this is, put off the old self, put on the new. Put off, put on. Put on those new clothes, those new garments of righteousness. What a tremendous reversal that is for us. What a tremendous reversal it was for them. From oppression under the Egyptians to a good and broad land. So at this point, he's probably, Moses is probably going, wow, this is, this is amazing. You're going to free my people. You're going to bring them to a great land. And now this is where his heart drops. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. After laying out all these great plans for his people, Israel, God told Moses that he would be the one sent to bring them out of Egypt. Ooh, yikes. Uh, I got some things to do. I have some flocks to shepherd. I don't know that this is a good idea, God. Moses was not expecting any of this. He was not expecting to hear from God. He was not looking to go back to Egypt. It's not like he was saving up to take a Trip back to see his people. He wasn't raising an army. He wasn't doing any of that. And God is saying, you're going back. And so Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, what is he saying? Is he saying, what's my name? I forgot. No, he knows who he is. In fact, I would say it's not that... His objection is not, I don't know who I am. It's, I know who I am, and I'm not your guy. I can't do it. You want somebody else. I know me. Choose someone else. And notice God's response. He doesn't say, oh, Moses, you have hidden talents that you don't know about. You're better than you think you are you know about sheep. You're ready to lead the people. No, what does he say? I will be with you. That's the comfort. I will be with you. That's how this is going to happen. That's where the power is going to come from. Moses knew that when he tried to go to them before, they rejected him as leader, and they said, who are you to tell us what to do? And so it's understandable why he would think, yeah, they're not going to want me now. I have been gone 40 years. They don't know me. How am I going to come in as an outsider and lead them out? How am I possibly going to convince Pharaoh to let them go? Come on, God, this isn't, Possible. He's the one who had fled, who had already shown himself to be more concerned with his own life than with the freedom of the people. Moses didn't think of himself as the deliverer. And he's right. In his own power, it's not going to happen. Can't do it. He's right. What, what authority would he have in himself to go and say, Let my people go to Pharaoh. The difference is, I will be with you. The promise of God is that he will be with those whom he calls to a task. God does not call someone to do something and then abandon them to that calling. When God calls, he also goes with And when he is with, he equips, he protects, he empowers. God's sign to Moses is also fascinating. This is the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Doesn't that seem like uh, the wrong order of things? The sign that I have sent you is that you will succeed in the mission and bring them out here to worship. What is God actually saying with this sign? Simply this. God was calling Moses to a life of faithful obedience and when he had done what God had told him to do, when he had gone to Egypt, when he had talked to Pharaoh, when he had set the people free and led them out into the wilderness, led them back to the mountain of Horeb and they worshiped God, then he would see then he would have the evidence of what he had hoped for. God would bring the Israelites back to this very mountain. It would be here, in fact, that we spend the majority of the book of Exodus, where God brings the Israelites to the mountain. It's also called Sinai. And they receive the law. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive the tabernacle designs. They receive all of the uh, covenant details that in a very real sense makes them the people of Israel. God would do all this. But for now, God was essentially telling Moses that he needed to believe and obey in order to see the sign. You're going to see the sign, but for now, just believe that I will be with you. I will bring these things about. Third thing I want you to see here is how God knew exactly what the outcome of all of this would be. It would be a very poor reading of Exodus to read it as if God was sort of um, experimenting and seeing what would work and what wouldn't and responding to circumstances as they change. No, God knew exactly how this was going to play out. So Moses says, okay, fine. Then he raises this objection. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now on the surface, this seems like kind of a strange question. I just told you who he is. He's the God of our fathers. What do you mean, what is his name? Part of this is a linguistic problem. Because in Hebrew, the word what... Ma is more than just asking for details. It's seeking after significance. What does it matter? Who is this? What is he going to do? How can he impact this situation that I find myself in, in slavery in Egypt? What can God do about our situation? They are, in effect, asking for God's qualifications to rescue them out of slavery. What is his name is more than just the name. It's what is his reputation? Same word name is also reputation. Shame is the word, the Hebrew word there. Mashem. What is his name? Mashem is what's his reputation? What does he have to show that I should trust in that? I've been a slave all my life. What can he do about it? This is a question of being. Who is this God? And how could this God deliver me out of slavery? After all, they knew exactly where they were. At the time, Egypt was the greatest kingdom on earth, the most organized. It had this huge pantheon of of gods that were worshipped. And even the pharaoh himself was revered as a deity himself. How... Is this God of my fathers going to overcome all of these obstacles? What can the God of my fathers do to help us in this situation? Don't you see how hopeless this is? God's response is with the divine covenant name to show his qualifications. I am who I am. Kind of a strange response in English, isn't it? I am who I am. What does that that mean? It's actually not just in English that it's a a bit of a puzzle though. In fact, it's been the topic of scholarly discussion and debate literally for thousands of years. What does the divine name even mean? I am who I am. There's a bit of an ambiguity actually with the tenses. It could be translated, I will be who I am, or I was who I am, or I am who I will be, or I am who I was. It has the, to do with God always in the present. God of your fathers, I am. God of the future when I will bring you into the land that I promised them, I am. God of right now in your afflictions, I am. God is always present. God is always who he is. He is who he is. The point is to recognize God's presence at all times. There is no time and no place where God is not. I am. It is this Yahweh that has sent Moses to his people. It is this Yahweh who will bring the Israelites out of Egypt according to his promise. This covenant name Yahweh, I am, has sent me to you. That's the only qualification you need to know. I am self-existent. I am who I am. It's a powerful, philosophical, deeply theological answer. And you can actually draw a lot of fascinating doctrines from this. One of my favorite uh, theological terms that you can throw out and people won't know what you're talking about and you can explain and feel really smart for it is this one. The aseity of God. What does aseity mean? It means he doesn't need anything. It means he's self-existent. He doesn't depend on anything at all. He is who he is. I am who I am. He is himself. And so God says, present to them This truth, Yahweh, has sent me to you, to save you, to rescue you. Use this name. Why do they use this name? Why is this the name by which he is to be known? Every time they say it, they are reminded of his presence with them. Every time they say Yahweh, be with me. Yahweh, help me. They are reminded God is present with them even then. Even every time they go, Yahweh, direct our steps in the future, they are reminded God is in the future. He is self-existent. He is always with them to protect them, to guide them. It's quite, quite a fascinating journey of self-existence that God presents to them. And so he says, present this to them and they will listen to you. The elders of Israel will listen and then you are to go to Pharaoh together and you are to say, three days journey into the wilderness. And yet God knows exactly how the confrontation is going to go. It's fascinating. In these short verses, he actually lays out exactly how the the exodus is going to go. And he, he knows that Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, will not listen, that his heart is hard, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. God knows exactly what will happen, and his purposes are to show that mighty hand as a witness, not only to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians, of who God really is, that God is great, that God is the one to fear. And then he lays out, not only will they be sent out, they will also be given great uh, wealth by the Egyptians. The Egyptians themselves will be plundered on their way, on the the, uh, Israelites' way out, which is exactly how it all plays out. God knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't calling Moses to go into some unknown territory of saying, Moses, I know exactly what I'm calling you to. This is how it's going to go. And I'm going to be with you. I'm the one that's bringing this about. Just go. This is an amazing promise that he has given And it is the same God who called Moses to become the deliverer of Israel who calls believers today to entrust ourselves to his righteous and holy will. Saving faith is about trusting God that he knows what he's doing. Saving faith is about connecting ourselves to the great deliverer, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. The amazing thing that we have is not that we know exactly what our lives are going to entail. We don't. There's a lot of mystery on our end, but it's not a mystery for God. God knows exactly what the future will hold, and so we can trust that he knows what he is doing. When he calls us to listen and obey, we can trust that that's a good decision. The people of God, who are the people of God? No longer is it just the genetic heritage from Abraham. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we're told in Romans 2 28 through 30. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from God, from man, but from God. This tells us that the people of God is no longer just the Israelites. It is all who believe. No matter what the genetic heritage is, that's not the main thing. The main thing is, are you trusting in the Lord? Has your heart trusted in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, then you have this promise that I am is with you, that you are not By yourself, And this promise of presence is also repeated in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, we see Jesus not only gives his followers a mission, he says, I will be with you. I will be present with you. You are not alone. Yes, you have a, a mission that is honestly beyond you. But the good news is, you're not alone. So when the Christian says, who am I to represent you, Lord? The answer is not, well, you're better than you think you are. It's, I'm with you. I identify with Moses quite a bit. Sometimes people will ask, um, what made you want to be a pastor? And um, I have different answers depending on what my mood is. Um, Sometimes I'll say, well, I still don't. Or sometimes what the true answer is, uh, when he called me. I, would, I, didn't, I never dreamt of being a, a pastor. It's just God called me to do it, and so here I am. And that's a good place to be, and I would encourage you, if you feel, I don't know if I can trust God with my future. Maybe he's going to call me to do something that I don't want to do. He might, but he'll also be with you, and he will empower you to do it. You're never called to a suicide mission that has no hope of success. If God is going to call you, he is also going to be with you. The Israelites experienced the mighty delivering hand of God from slavery in Egypt. Believers experience the mighty hand of God to deliver us from slavery to sin and to bring us into eternal life, hope that never disappoints. There's tremendous blessing for those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who is with us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great I am. Lord, we worship you. We praise you, O Lord, that you have great plans that you alone know. Lord, you have called us to be your own. Would you help us, Lord, to entrust ourselves to you, to walk by faith and not by sight?